There are two readings today. The first reading is from Isaiah chapter 7 and can be found on page 692 in the Pew Bibles, beginning at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings will... Sorry. The land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give the name of Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mary. So we're coming towards the end of the year. I know we're looking forward to Christmas, but you might already be thinking about next year as well. And you might be deciding, I know what I want to do next year. I want to read through the Bible in a year. Lots of people do that. Some here may have done it before. Cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, I don't know, three or four chapters every day right through the year. Or maybe you want to be bolder than that. Maybe you want to say, actually, I'm going to read through the whole of the Bible in January. 31 days, a bit more reading to do, but no, I can do it. Maybe let me challenge you even more. This evening, England are playing. After England have won, or, or, or not, to encourage yourself or to celebrate, why don't you say, I know, I'm going to read the Bible in a week. You could start at nine o'clock this evening and then finish it at Saturday, on Saturday evening. In fact, if England win tonight, they'll be playing again next Saturday. So you can have football matches at the end of your week with a load of Bible reading in between. What a fantastic way to live. Why haven't I thought of that before? Now, you'd have to take a week off work 
uh, and you probably have to read for about 12 or 14 hours a day. But, it, but it's doable. If you really do, go for it. I'll ask next week if anyone's risen to that challenge. But if you were to do that, you'd only get to that chapter in Matthew somewhere late on Thursday. Most of your week, you would be spending in the Old Testament, going through the Old Testament stories. Some of it at times might be a little bit of a struggle as you work through some of the laws. But every now and then, right through the Old Testament, there would be this golden thread that you would find all the way through. These verses just coming in, these passages just coming in, pointing the way towards Jesus. And this morning, it's one of those that we're going to look at together in Isaiah chapter 7. So let me just pray for us very briefly. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Old Testament and the New Testament. We thank you as we, this Advent time, look forward to celebrating once more Jesus coming into the world, that we can see in your scriptures, in your stories given to us, that there's this thread pointing all the way through for many hundreds, indeed thousands of years, pointing towards Jesus. May we grasp that today ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this, I'm going to uh, give us three points. What's foretold, what's fulfilled, and what's for us. I've kind of played around a little bit with my wording, but it kind of works. Foretold, fulfilled, for us. So first of all, foretold. Isaiah chapter 7, just to plunge us in there to a little bit of historical context, these events are somewhere around 740 to 732 BC. We know that because there's lots of history that, that backs that up in terms of the kings and what was going on at the time. And you'll recall that Israel used to be a, a one nation, a powerful nation under God's covenant promises. But by this point, it's already gone wrong in the northern part. There's already been in the division between Israel and Judah. And up north, they're already going into captivity. They're no longer following all of the covenant promises of God. Down south in Judah, they're just about clinging on still. And there's this coalition that's going on between Syria and Israel, or referred to as Ephraim in this passage, so the northern part. They're in a coalition, a war coalition together, that's coming against Judah down south. And Ahab Sorry, Ahaz, not Ahab. Ahaz is, is the king of Judah down south. Heir, as we're told here, of David's throne, but a hint there, of course, towards Jesus coming in David's line. But whilst he's heir already, he's not particularly faithful to God. In fact, what he has done, he's taken the, the, the gold out of the temple and he's used that to try to persuade Assyria to come on his side in his battle against Syria and against Ephraim. So it's a bit of a mess. War coalition coming against him. He's taken the money to pay someone else to try and come onto his side. And it's into that then that Isaiah comes and speaks on the Lord's behalf. 
Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Ask him for a sign. Ask him to show you that he's, he's still on your side. He's still with you in this. He, he, he still wants you to pull through. But how does he respond? I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds quite a good sort of spiritual answer, that, doesn't it? Don't put the Lord God to the test. But it's, it, it's a false piety here. He's already putting God to the test. They're already worshipping other gods. He's already using the money that is in the, in the temple to pay off um, someone to come on his side. He's already testing God. He's already leading the people astray. So it's a false piety, which is why Isaiah then says, Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The word there for sign is some extraordinary sign, something incredible. The Lord will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then as we read on, he'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings that you dread, so the land of Ephraim and of Syria. The Lord will bring on you, that will be laid waste. And the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Israel broke away from Judah and he'll bring the king of Assyria. You've been given a chance, but you've spurned it. So this will be the sign this sign of prediction, this sign of warning. Verses 16 and 17 get fulfilled fairly shortly in the years that are to come. Syria falls to Assyria in 732 BC. Israel falls in 722 BC. And then Assyria turns Judah into some sort of vassal state, some sort of controlled puppet state, And then gradually over the years after that, Judah and Jerusalem are devastated. It doesn't go very well. Ahaz has a choice. Will he go with the divine promises or will he go with human policies? We can see what he chooses. Human policies before the divine promises promises that God had for him. I know that was a point in time some 2,700 years ago, but maybe it also strikes true again today. Where do we sit in the dark times in which we're living when we look around with war going on still, with other situations that we're facing? We put our trust in human policies or will we put our trust in God's promises? For us. But what about this particular verse, this golden thread verse, 7 verse 14? The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Much has been written on this verse. Jewish scholars, messianic Jewish scholars, Christian scholars have poured over this verse for years and years. I quipped this morning that Eddie always gives me these ones that there's lots to read on. I had to preach a revelation the other week in the evening service. And pouring over it this week, between the football, there's some debate around the word there of whether this is a virgin or a young woman. 
Now, I looked into it. I'm not convinced that the arguments that suggest that the word actually means young woman. I think it does mean virgin quite clearly. But there's some discussion around it. How is this then fulfilled in, in these kind of times, uh, in, in Isaiah's time? Well, there's a suggestion that this is referring to it. I need my glasses here. There's a suggestion that uh, there was a woman who was young or a virgin who turns out to be Isaiah's second wife. And if you look into uh, Isaiah 8, verse 3, you can see it going on. Then I went to the prophetess, that's Isaiah going to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Shalal Hajbaz, which of course is not Emmanuel. Forgive me if I have not actually said that correctly. All right, I've done my best there with the Hebrew. Um, but if you look on to verse 10, it does say, Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. So perhaps there is some kind of fulfilment in and around 700 BC of what Isaiah was saying at the time. The trouble with this, though, is other scholars suggest that Isaiah's second wife uh, wasn't young and she wasn't a virgin. So it starts to fall down a little bit. And other scholars have also pointed out, and this is where it gets very complicated, the different use of words of singular and plural and that there's two actual prophecies going on here. One for then, which is going to happen with this boy before he actually knows he's right and wrong, this, that and the other, which is for Ahaz to take. But in verses 13 and 14, it's the plural, and it's referencing David's throne to them more than just one individual, but to the whole people. We can't be completely sure, then, if this was actually fulfilled in these days. But something was foretold. And I suggest something of much greater import than just for that moment in time. And of course, we're just looking at a little part of Isaiah here, but Isaiah's chapters 7 to 11 are are very messianic chapters. And again, I need to pick my glasses up, but if you've got your Bible there, if you just turn into Isaiah chapter 9, and we might be hearing about this in the days come building up to Christmas. By way of the sea, verse 1, beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. What does that speak of then for us? And if we go on, the very famous verses, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, for us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, etc., etc., etc. You see, there may be a partial thing going on here in Isaiah's time and in Ahaz's time. But it seems as if this is pointing somewhere further down the line to somebody more significant being foretold. Someone foretold, something fulfilled. If you do a Google search, Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus, it will come up with somewhere between Two, I mean, there'll be millions of searches that will be revealed, but it'll come up somewhere between 200 and 400 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. See, it all depends where you kind of 
when you divide it up. But somewhere between 200 and 400, I know that's quite a spread. One particular guy I came across was very specific. There are 351 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. There'll be prophecies about his time of birth. There are prophecies about the place of birth. There are prophecies about Jesus' betrayal. There are prophecies about the crucifixion. We've got that wonderful, sad, moving, challenging passage in Isaiah 53 that point towards the Messiah and the crucifixion. If you want to come and learn more about that sort of stuff, and I said this to Andy beforehand because I mentioned it earlier, come on one of the things like Case for Christ that we do. I've not been on the course, but I've, I've read the book. There's a chapter in there that talks about uh, a Jew who comes to discover his Messiah through looking through the Old Testament and discovering all these prophecies that point towards Jesus. I also read this, and Andy gave me an even more incredible statistic. But if you just take eight prophecies, and I've said this between 200 and 400, but if you just take eight prophecies the chances of those eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person is 10 to the power of 17. That's lots of noughts. I can't get my head around how many million, trillion, billion, whatever it must be, if you take all 351 or 200 to 400 prophecies being fulfilled in one person. But let's come to Matthew and let's just stick with him at this point. And that passage, that second passage, I went very kind of traditional Church of England today. We had an Old Testament and a New Testament reading. We don't have to do that every week, Eddie. It's all right. (laughs) Well, let's come to Matthew. And what does Matthew actually say? And before we look at the actual verse, let me remind you who Matthew is. If you're like me, some here are older than me, some younger than me, but you've been in church for a number of years, you sat through, I don't know how many Christmases, And how many times you've heard the Christmas story told and read from the front? hundred? I don't know. And we can switch off, can't we? We can go, oh yeah, I know the birth narratives. I've heard them before. I've heard them in Matthew. I've heard them in Luke. I mean, I've dressed up as shepherds up here and I've watched my children dress up as shepherds up here and one day I'll watch my grandchildren. But we can switch off and think, not the birth narratives again. Well, let me remind you who's writing this. It's Matthew. Matthew, who was a disciple of Jesus. But where did it start with Matthew? Matthew, another time of political tension in Israel, when it was an occupying force. But Matthew, who, who betrayed his, his Jewish brothers and, and sisters by, by going in league with the Romans, by, by being a tax collector, by taking money from his brothers and sisters and, and giving it to the, the occupying force. Matthew is therefore shunned by society, shunned by his community, an outcast, someone who was hated. That Matthew, who on one occasion was sitting near his tax collector's booth, and Jesus says, follow me. And he leaves it all and follows Jesus. And his life is transformed by this person. His life is transformed by the Messiah, the Christ, the Chosen One. It's that Matthew who passionately wants to write and show us, as we look at it today, who this person was. Who this person was who'd been pointing toward, been pointed towards for 700 plus years. Let's remember that when we look at this verse, what he's doing. It's not just an academic book. 
but is a man who's passionate about Jesus because Jesus has transformed and changed his life. I want to read you just very briefly from one of the commentaries I looked at about, um, about Matthew. I've never done this before, I don't think, read from a commentary at the front of church. But just listen to this little bit because I think it sums up something of the passion. The essential key to all Matthew's theology is that in Jesus, all God's purposes have come to fulfilment. This is, of course, true of all New Testament theology, but it's emphasised in a remarkable way in Matthew. Everything is related to Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to him. Its law is fulfilled in his teaching. He is the true Israel through whom God's plans for his people now go forward. The future, no less than the present, is to be understood as the working out of the ministry of Jesus. History revolves around him, in that his coming is the turning point at which the age of preparation gives way to the age of fulfilment. Matthew leaves no room for any idea of the fulfilment of God's purposes, whether for Israel or in any other respect, which is not focused in this theme of fulfilment in Jesus. In his coming, a new age has dawned. Nothing will ever be quite the same again. Nothing will ever be quite the same again. Matthew takes this Old Testament prophecy. It's the first of 11 that he takes. And he points it towards Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And I mentioned earlier, let me just read the verse again to you. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. I mentioned the debate that has gone on around Isaiah 7.14, around whether or not this was a virgin. Matthew is very clear. Matthew takes the Greek word, parthenos, the word that was also used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which only means virgin, not young woman. And in case we're not quite getting the message, the story around it in Matthew is all about pointing to the fact that Mary was a virgin. The angel coming to persuade Joseph and say, don't worry about it. The angel telling, look, this is conceived by the Holy Spirit. This woman is a virgin. The fact that Joseph then has no union with her until after the birth of the child. It's very clear to Matthew that Mary was a virgin. And he wants us to grasp that. Foretold, fulfilled for us. My third point. Anybody uh, look at the census results this year, this week? Lots was in the press about the census results. Um, and most of it seemed to focus around. I mean, there must have been loads of stuff in it. Everything I was reading or hear about was all to do with we're no longer a Christian country, whatever that means. But just to remind you what the stats were, uh, in, in 2011, 2011, uh, 59% of people had ticked the box to say they were Christian. Uh, and that has now gone down to 46% in 2021. Meanwhile, in 2011, uh, 25% were ticking no religion, and now that's gone up to 37%. So what was 25% and 59% is now 37% and 
So less than the country now are saying that they're Christian. And there was loads of stuff. I read some stuff from Christians and non-Christians and listened to radio debates and all sorts of stuff. I was also at uh, uh, an exhibition, a a religion and football exhibition uh, this week that I was speaking at and ended up getting into a conversation with somebody afterwards because all different peoples of of faith there. And what were my views on this? And I think I gave, yeah, gave my views. I'm not, you may disagree with this, but I'm, I'm not, in some sense, particularly concerned. In fact, I think there just may be a bit more honesty going on now. That perhaps people were ticking a box ten years ago, well, um, well I, I was baptised in the church as a baby. Um, I got married in the church. Uh, I, I quite liked to have my funeral in the church. So, um, Arctic Christian. Is that what makes us a Christian? Where we tick on a census box? When we get to heaven, the apocryphal story of Peter being at the gates, you know, what he say now? Let me just check. Where did you tick in 2011 and 2021? Is that, is that what's going to make us Christian or not? The Archbishop of York said this about the census results. First of all, I'm not really surprised. But then he goes on. He said, this throws down a challenge to us, not only to trust that God will build his kingdom on earth, but also to play our part in making Christ known. To to do our part, to play our part in making Christ, in making the Messiah, in making Jesus known. Or in the words of a friend who we've had texts already explained to us, but this was in English, there wasn't any funny letters in it. A text that I got from a friend this week who said, saw the census results, you need to up your game. (laughs) And I kind of agree with him. We need to be clear about making Christ known. Perhaps, brothers and sisters, we need to up our game. The Apostles' Creed, that foundational teaching of the Christian faith that's been around for hundreds of years, says this, and I'm just going to give you a little snapshot. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. I profess to being a Christian not because I ticked the box on a census form. I did tick that box, by the way. But because I have repented and continue to repent, actually, confess my sins earlier when we were doing the confession. Because I know I muck up. I know I get things wrong. I know I say wrong things, think wrong things, do wrong things. I've repented and I believed, I've put my faith and my trust in Jesus. The Jesus spoken about here in the Apostles' Creed. The Jesus spoken about here in Matthew. The Jesus pointed towards in Isaiah. The Jesus both born of a virgin and the Jesus of an empty tomb. Because for me, those two things go together. 
There was some debate in the radio phone-in I heard this week that, well, Christians now, well, can we, we can call ourselves Christians and not, not believe in these things, can't we? You know, we're a little bit more enlightened now, and so, you know, we don't have to believe in, in a virgin birth. And, 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 and the resurrection as well, well, that's pushing it a little bit. Well, what does that leave us with? We, 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 we're left with... Um, a baby that was born, a man that was born, just like the same as any of the rest of us. There's nothing supernatural there, it's just a normal birth. And, and then, well, 30-odd years later, he dies, and, and that's it, stays dead. Is that what Christianity's about? I mean, a good bloke said some interesting things. His biographies are quite interesting, although I guess we might have to take out all the other kind of miraculous stuff in there, the walking on water, the, the healings, the, the turning water into wine. Well, let's, but, but he said a few interesting things about turning your other, the other cheek and, and all of that. So, well, well what a good bloke. Let, let's just follow him. But he's dead, and there was nothing supernatural or special about him. Personally, I suggest that's no faith at all, really. And in fact, without the virgin birth and without the resurrection, Emmanuel makes no sense either. For how is that God with us? Well, he's not God and he's no longer with us. Great, just get on with it. There's no hope for anybody. Isaiah seemed clear that there was something going to be going on in the future that was a bit of a mystery that he didn't understand. Matthew is convinced and explains it to us. We've recited the creed that Jesus, who was prophesied 700-odd years before his birth, came, was born at Christmas, which we are about to celebrate in a few years' time. And not by coincidence, Matthew starts his gospel in Matthew chapter 1 with this prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us. And he ends his gospel with the same phrase. Because what's the last thing that Jesus says to his disciples before he goes up into heaven? And lo, behold, take hold of, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's the miraculous, supernatural, life-transforming, changing presence that Jesus made in the life of Matthew and makes in the life of us as Christians today. That's the message that we need to continue to proclaim and not water down. Because if we do, nailing my colours to the mast, it's no faith at all without that. In this Advent season, this dark season, I hate getting up in the mornings because it's dark. I've said it before, I'm not a morning person. It's even harder not being a morning person at the moment. Please pray for us, you morning early birds who jump out of bed and go, hey, the day's started. Please pray for us who struggle in the morning. Because it's really dark when I get up at the moment. And then the day finishes quite early and it gets dark again quite quickly. We're in dark times literally with the light. It's also darkness around us, isn't it, metaphorically, with some of the stuff that we see in the news, with war going on, with the economic crisis. There's a lot of darkness. It's also dark at the front of church at the moment until we get the lighting sorted out. 
We are living in the dark ages here in St. John's at the front of the church. Sort it out, please. But maybe it's the same question that's posed to us, that was posed to Ahaz, in a different context, in a different culture, in a different time. But Ahaz was asked, in whom will you put your trust? Isaiah and Matthew point to Jesus. Will we choose his miraculous presence in our lives this Christmas time? I'm going to answer that on my behalf. Yes. Amen.